At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. The 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. And what's really important is that we band together, we speak with one voice. And I was like, you sure? Because I've got two kids, I don't want it to ruin your hunt. And you're like, yeah, yeah, just come and home with me. Just take your time. Like I said, it would have killed a normal man, but I'm not normal, but, you know. When you said, why do you want to talk about that? To me, it was kind of like, oh my gosh, there's so many different factors that go into this decision. Enjoy it for what it is. Every moment of it. If, if, if you're only going to shoot one duck. Welcome to the Foul Front Podcast, part of the Waypoint Outdoor Collective. Hey, Foul Front, it's Hannah from Oak Barn Beef. We're giving away a box of steaks, jerky, and more premium beef exclusively for the listeners of the Foul Front. To sign up, head over to foulfront.com and click on the Oak Barn Beef Giveaway tab to enter into this giveaway. Thanks, and we can't wait for you to try our Nebraska-raised and dry-aged premium beef. Hello and welcome to the Foul Front Outdoors Waterfowl Podcast. I am your host today, Alex Wallace, and I'm sure some of you are asking the question, where is Ben? And this is what he was getting at last week when he was saying this is going to be a first in Waterfowl uh, or the Foul Front Outdoors Podcast history is that this is the first episode that Ben's not hosting. So he is uh, out on a work trip this week and has left me the the, uh, the co-host to put together the episode and I took that opportunity to you know, to talk about something that you've heard me allude to on several other podcasts um, that we've been a part of is the fact that I am a boat hunter. I, I love boats. I have a small boat collection and adding a duck boat was something that was very exciting to me and as I started getting into that I um, you know, was thinking about the world of opportunities that was going to open up in my duck hunting. And I'm sure some of you out there have been in a similar case where you've asked yourself, uh, man, the ducks are landing over there. If I can only get to a different point or a different point of access, or, you know, some of you may live in areas where you're on rivers and, and it would just uh, open up a whole different world of opportunity to you. And so 
uh, for that, I kind of got to thinking and couldn't think of anyone better to sit down and do a podcast with about duck boats than the founder of Go Devil and a, uh, an innovator in the world of duck boats and duck boat hunting and the products that he's brought to the the environment. And with that, we're going to sit down tonight and we're going to have a uh, interview and talk a little bit about the history uh, of the mud motor and of the duck boat with Mr. Warren Coco. And so with that, uh, Mr. Coco, how are you doing today? I'm doing fine. All right. And how is the, uh, what's the, what's the weather and the duck hunting like? You've been out in it all this year? Uh, been hunting every weekend plus few days, you know, holidays and all that. Our weather right now is 79 degrees. It's horrible. I mean, this is, you know, the weather, we just hadn't had any cold weather far enough down to really help us out hunting. Uh, you know, we've had probably one of the worst seasons I've had in 50 years of hunting. No kidding. What have you guys been seeing that's come actually made its way down? Uh, we had some mallards come, but we're not seeing on the coast. We're not seeing the gadwalls and the teal that we should be seeing with the weather we have. I have two places that I hunt. One is in southwest Louisiana, Cameron Parish, and I've got another place up on the Red River. So working in cotton, working in cotton and soybean farm that we bought for duck hunting. And I manage both properties exclusively for duck hunting very intensely. And this year we didn't get anything planted because of the flooding on the rivers. You know, our water didn't leave till August, so we never got a crop in and never got to plant anything in for the ducks, except I have some really good moist soil. I've got food for them, they're just not coming. And then this past weekend we had a handful of ducks. It looked like we were going to make a good hunt, and then we had a thunderstorm came through, ran them all off right before daylight. So it's been really tough for us but right now we're in a balmy foggy weather in the mornings and like say it was 79 degrees here today i had to turn the air conditioner on in the office yeah i'm down here in south texas right now and it was 79 degrees and i turned the air conditioning on in my office too so it's been <laughs> it's been kind of warm down here but my duck situation is a little bit different we've had quite a few ducks i had i've had a good decent couple of weeks here and i think they just get down here to the texas coast and they stop they decide they don't want to go any further south and they don't need to um so it, but i've been hearing a lot about that from louisiana and arkansas and that area that it hasn't been quite the season that they've expected it to be um but anyways, you know, and it's, it was that way last year too, wasn't it? Yeah, it was bad last year, but it's worse this year. What happened last year, the weather stopped further north. Like Arkansas had a real bad season. And this year, they're doing better. They're still not doing what they should be doing. But the weather is stopping. We're not getting the colder weather. I've drained the water in my camp one time the whole hunting season. And it didn't even get to freezing then. I did it during the split. I was gonna be going. I wasn't coming back for two weeks, so I drained my water. And anytime it freezes, you know, I'm gonna drain the water. And uh, but I hadn't drained the water but that one time. Now we're closing out this weekend. It'll be the last weekend on the coastal zone. And next weekend will be the last weekend on the east zone, which is in North Louisiana. I'll be going on the river next weekend. All right. Well, I'm going out this weekend a couple of times myself. We've got another. We've got a bonus week here in Texas. We go one week longer, I think. So. Well, uh, you know, I'll, I'll keep you posted on how it goes here. How about the UNLSU fan? Excuse me? Yeah, you said a UNLSU fan? Uh, a little bit. I'm not, I don't watch all the games, but my friends, when they come to the camp, they watch the LSU game, and I'll watch a little bit of it. And uh, I watch the game Monday night. That's the second 
full game that I sat out and watched in my lifetime, other than the last time they played one national championship when Saban was still a coach. A pretty interesting game the other night. They started out, they weren't looking too good that first five minutes. I said, they and then they, they got in gear and they rolled on. They, they did a real good job against Clemson. Yeah, I was kind of. I mean, I'm a, I'm an SEC fan myself, so I was, uh, you know, I was I was I was rooting for Coach O on that one. So I figured you, uh, I figured that you guys in the whole state would be pretty excited about that. So congratulations to you guys for your national championship. So I'm sure there's a lot of happy duck hunters out there right now. There's a lot of happy duck hunters, a lot of, a lot of football fans. One of my guys I hunt with treats the LSU football team. He's a physical therapist that treats them, so he knows all the uh, players and coaches and. All that I kind of got the inside scoop on things if I wanted. <laughs> well, that's good. Well, you know, as much as uh, folks would probably like us to sit here and talk about football, sometimes we want to talk a little bit about what your specialty is here. And so, you know, mud boats and mud motors are uh, are kind of an interesting thing. You know, you don't see them a whole lot of places. And you know, my question, you know, to start things off here is a little bit about the history of these things and and what do people, what do folks down there in Louisiana? And in other shallow, muddy, marshy waters, what did what did they use to get around with before before Go Devil showed up on the scene? Well, back then we pushed P-Rogs, you know, to get you know last part of the way to get to where we were hunting in the marsh and the swamp. And either you either walk or you push the P-Rog or you crawl. And then the mud boats, what I call a true mud boat, is not what people call a mud boat now. What we had as far as mud boats were inboard boats, a lot of them using air cool engines like we're using now on, on the Godel of the service drives. But then a lot of them have, you know, any engine from a V4 Wisconsin up to a 454 Chevrolet engine with a marine transmission in it. And I have one of those with a 400 Chevrolet engine in it, 20 foot boat. I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's like driving a tugboat. I pulled a barge with a drag line on it at one time and it's just a workhorse but that was used quite consistently on the coast of louisiana not so far inland in the timber or the swamp because there's an inboard boat shaft coming out the bottom big propeller and you couldn't run it in stumps and logs with soft mud and vegetation in the marsh it worked really really well but owning a mud boat is like owning an airboat is like owning a race car no difference B-O-A-T, when you got one of those stands out, for break out another thousand. <laughs> yeah, I mean, boats are traditionally not terribly, uh, you know, inexpensive objects to have. And so, so they, I mean, when, I guess like, so they would need to get somewhere and they would have, you know, a flat bottom boat of some kind and you would just see people take a car motor and, and, and drop it in and, 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 and hook it up, basically. That was kind of the solution to the problem on the coast. Not really. They started out, they had to build a custom-built boat. You couldn't just take an aluminum giant boat and put an engine in it. You had to start out, a lot of them were wooden boats early on, and then they went to building aluminum boats. And this is all, you know, really heavy-duty equipment. And what happened, you had boats that most people couldn't afford. So a lot of people went outboard motors and then went by P-Rog from there on. You know, back years ago, I hunted a place that's now WMA is Man Shack Wildlife Management Area. We used to ride around Lake Pontchartrain to get in there to hunt, drag P Rogs over and push to where we were going to hunt. Well, fighting Lake Pontchartrain with a cold front is not an easy task. I mean, it gets really rough and dangerous. I've had friends out there sink the boat and almost lose their lives. 
So I found another way in to get in there, but it was a four and a half hour push, pushing a P-Rog. And it's one man and a P-Rog. You can't put two. And it takes four and a half hours in and four and a half hours out. And I did that for several years. And then as time progressed, started hunting other places. Now to hunt that place with a go-devil is about a 15-minute go-devil ride to get in there. You know, it's, it's nothing like what it was. So the go-devil really changed everything. You know, when we came on board with it, it was when, when you know, built the first one, it, it, I, I saw things, you know, just things went through my mind. I said, man, th- this is going to happen. This is going to work. And this is going to really do well. So where did the concept, I mean, so, you know, I, I envision these folks pushing, you know, that's a dedication to the, the craft right there. If you're going to spend four, four and a half hours pushing in. So like, where did the, like, when did you first see like the early version of what, you know, kind of exists right now show up? Like where, where was that? Like, where did that kind of come from? The original concept came from Vietnam, Southeast Asia. What had happened a friend of mine brought me hunting over in Hackberry, Louisiana, where I'm hunting now. He says, man, they got this funny-looking engine over here. I want you to build me one. I said, man, what are you talking about? He says, well, somebody was in Vietnam, came back, and they built one. Another guy saw it. He built one. and I want you to build me one. I said, he explained it to him. I said, man, you're crazy. So I went over there and went hunting and came back. We stopped his boat shed and got out and I looked at this thing. Now, you got to realize what I saw. This was something built in a farmer's barn, I think, with a hammer and an axe. It had an old cast iron Briggs engine. You had to wrap a rope on to pull start. You had a rubber hose for a bearing in the bottom. It was on about a 1950 Avenue bracket. It was something built out of junk. And I saw that, and I laughed so hard. He said, man, I don't know, man. That thing will go. It'll go. I said, it works. I said, yeah, uh-huh. And I got to thinking about it, and I was very familiar with propellers and boats and uh, inboard, you know, we built little small inboard mud boats, and I had one at the time. Same concept, except the shaft is fixed in the mud boat, whereas the go devil was more like an outboard and you know, maneuver. So it took me about a month to get all my junk rounded up. I built the first one, and I was shocked. I said, "Man, this thing will work." Now you got to realize the first one I built. It's a 10-horsepower coal cast iron engine weighs as much as a 35-horsepower we build now. But, you know, we refined it and everything through the years. I built that first one. I said, man, I'm going to quit my job start building these. I was working at Klein Peter Dairy here in Baton Rouge as a mechanic in 1977 making $5 an hour. I quit a $5 job worked for three years without a paycheck. Started in the backyard at a friend of mine, my hunting buddy, he was a union electrician working out of hall, and he was part-time and I was full-time. We started in his parents' backyard, a little shop that we had built. We worked there for two years and came to this location and built a 30 by 50 building, and now I'm up to about 53,000 square feet of buildings and 30 employees. Things have really changed since 1977. Now, what's your, what's your background as far as like what, you know, like, you, you started duck hunting when you were a little kid, and then, like, what did you, you know, I mean, what's your background as far as in the engineering and all that other good stuff? I started duck hunting when I was about 12, 13 years old with friends of mine. We'd go sit on creeks and river banks and canal banks trying to shoot wood ducks in the evening, and then really enjoyed duck hunting. We did a lot of rabbit hunting, really enjoyed duck hunting. And then when I got out of high school, I was duck hunting. 
when, when I got out of high school, I couldn't buy a job with cash money. I couldn't get a job bagging groceries for 50 cents an hour because God said, you never bag groceries before I can't hire you. And I got hired at the dairy because a friend of mine's dad worked there, and, and they wouldn't hire me because I didn't have any tools. He said, well, he can work out of my toolbox till he make, make enough money to buy tools. And that's where I got my start. I was very mechanically inclined. I tell everybody my first engineering project was I got a drill for Christmas when I was about 13 years old. I found out I could drill a hole in metal. I said, man, look out now. <laughs> I took my bicycle and I took a hacksaw and saw the, the, the bearing unit out where the pedals are, flatten those pipes and, and bolted a piece of three-quarter plywood on to put an engine on. I was riding down the road. I wasn't pedaling anymore. <laughs> and then I, I, I just got a real good knack for you know, mechanical equipment. And when I worked at Kleinpeter, I was hired to work on milk trucks. But we worked on trucks. We worked out, took care of all the farm equipment. We repaired the bottling equipment. We worked on everything. There was nothing we didn't fix. That's probably the best experience I got in my life was working for those people and all the different things I was able to work on. And that really taught me a lot about life and how to handle people and how to confront problems. You know, when I run into a problem, the way I handle it, I treat it like a big black bull coming at me. And if you want to reach up there and grab one of his horns and break it off and kill him with it and move on to the next dog you got to kill and just take care of things. And don't put things off. Take care of them as they come. But that's how I got started. I have no formal education. I never went to college. I hated high, I hated school. When I got out of high school, I hit the ground running. I said, they'll never catch me in the walls of the schoolhouse again. My nephew is a civil engineer, and he's doing some work for me. And I, tell, I talked to him one day, and I said, man, if I had your education, I, I, I would have really went a long way. He says, no, you wouldn't. You'd be like me working for somebody else. He's done far surpassed that. He started on the engineering firm, sold it out, and owns part of a bigger engineering firm now. And don't tell where he's going to wind up, but he has done some work for me engineering-wise as far as we built equipment, built a big pressure brake, and he helped me on that, and we still do a lot of things back and forth, and I've I've helped him on projects and stuff that they handle and do from time to time, but I just got a real mechanical expertise that I was born with. You can't, you just got to have it, and, and, and I was born with that, and what I had was the knowledge of, of, of what to do, but I didn't have a lazy bone in my body. I knew all my life I was going to have to work for anything I was going to have. And I never was scared of work. I'd jump in, bail in, and go for it. And that's how I've succeeded. So, I mean, when you looked at when you looked at this motor and this, this gentleman here told you to build a duck boat motor, then that was just that was just another challenge. That was just something else. To, that was like hacking the pedals off your bike then. That, that's exactly what it was. And when I got started, everybody, what was so funny, when I got business started, I tell everybody I couldn't give them away with $100 bills tied on. People look at that and say, man, you crazy. That won't work. And, and I heard that so many times. I said, man, that'll never work. Man, that won't work. I said, man, it does work. Well, the ones that told me that, I eventually got their money. It, it <laughs> took time, but I got them. And so, so you built this. You built this first version of a mud motor. Now, did it look kind of like a? I mean, did it look like a long tail? Basically, like it was just kind of a reconfigured with outboard parts and an air cooled motor, and it looked like a long tail. Or, or how did it kind of? What was it? What was its kind of general profile? 
it, it was very similar to what we're doing now. And that, that was the first one that was built with that cast iron engine, which was way too heavy. It wasn't the right engine for that. But we didn't have many engines to choose from at that time. The biggest aluminum block engine that British Stratton built was eight horsepower at the time. So that's what we started with in 1977. We built eight horsepowers. Then we built five horsepowers, which I had some people didn't need that big engine. And in the first year, they came out with a 10 horsepower. I had one 10 horsepower the first year. And then the second year, they came up to a bigger twin cylinder engine with a 16 horsepower. Weight was a big factor. The only other engines available were cast iron. They were much too heavy for this application. They would work, but they weren't feasible to use on this application because of the weight. And as time progressed, engines got better, better quality. And, you know, Honda came in, they started building engines, and that made British Stratton step up on their game. And then they finally came out with Vanguard engine in 1988. My whole product changed at that point. The quality of my product got 10 times better because the quality of the engine was so much better. And that's what we're into building now is, you know, V-twin, twin-cylinder engines, lighter in weight for the horsepower and now we're up to 40 horsepower on fuel injected vanguard in the same style engine but fuel injected so you started so you started off with this kind of the, the long tail so okay you know you said that they brought it over from vietnam and it was a long tail type profile to get you know because they were using motors overseas to get through very similar environments that a lot of duck hunters face and so you, you and you, and you build and when you started out, did the first ones you ever listed? So when did you found Go Devil and what was the first motor that you listed for sale? Like when did you make this kind of a, you know, you said you quit your job. Like when did you actually like put the letters Go Devil on something and start marketing it? And that was in August of 1977. I quit my job and started. I had orders for engines and went to build them immediately. And we started building an eight horsepower engine. And what? The first one I built was just kind of rough and crude. The second one was more refined, close to what we're building now, except what we're building now, we've changed a few. The, the basic overall design is the same, except we've refined it, different bracing on it, better seal and bearing systems on it, a pressure lubricator on it. We've kind of refined it. Not only did we get a better engine to put on it, we refined all the drive line, made better propellers, made stainless steel propellers. We start out with brass propellers. You gotta realize in the engines that they use in Vietnam were mostly transportation in water. They would run in shallow water, but they weren't designed to go where we're going now because they had aluminum propellers and they weren't weedless and, and it's just a whole different market what they were using in Southeast Asia and what we're running here. Two totally different animals. You know, I was going after a four-wheel drive market, and they were in a two-wheel drive market, basically, in, in Southeast Asia. And so you built this, so you built this first motor, and then you built it for your buddy, he told you to, you know, and then you started driving around. Now, how long did it take before folks around you started saying, hey, that that's a pretty effective, like, were you just bringing back straps of ducks from far off places that other people that were push pole and just couldn't get to? No, I was selling them before duck season started. You know, when I got started in August, I had orders for about six engines. I built solos, came back, started building more. Picked up a dealer here in Baton Rouge who's a big duck hunter. Got hooked up with a few other dealers here in Louisiana that recognized the need for the product. And that's how we got started the first year. I had a dealer in Lake Charles, Louisiana, one in Baton Rouge. 
one in Appleville, Louisiana, and they bought everything we built. First year, we didn't sell the 60 engines. It took everything I could do to build those 60 engines. The process we were using, I was cutting metal with a cutting torch and grinding with a side grinder. Now we're cutting parts on a shear or either having them laser cut, you know, much higher quality product. The end result is much better than what we had started out with. And then, you know, machine parts, I had to buy a lathe and a milling machine. Now I've got three lathes and three mills. And then we still, we sub most of that work out because it's all done on CNC equipment. Now, majority of it, we still do some machine work, but we do have a lot of it done out because you can buy it cheaper than you can make it in the house. Hmm. Yeah, I guess that that kind of makes sense. So you built these, you built these motors, and these were all long tails, I take it. And you offered a couple of different sizes. And were people just putting these on, you know, regular aluminum John boats, or what were they? What were they kind of putting them on to, to get from point A to point B? Most of us just going on regular John boats. They take any aluminum John boat. That was what was so good about it. They could take a John boat. The first engines were sold sold for like. Seven hundred dollars, eight horsepower. They could spend seven hundred dollars. They had a mud boat. They didn't have to buy an inboard boat, Chevrolet engine, and all that expensive upkeep. They had something for you know for under a thousand dollars. They were running. They were going duck hunting, and that just totally changed everything on our market. The biggest hurdle was getting it accepted nationwide. In other words, the people here they jumped on it because they saw a need for it. Because we have more shallow water than anybody. But this thing just doesn't run in shallow water. It runs on rocky rivers. It runs in all types of terrain that, that people wouldn't recognize. You know, they'd go, like hunting in Arkansas and flooded timber. You know, the people go with outboard motor, then they drag the boat to get where they're going to hunt ducks. Well, now they're riding to the point where they're hunting ducks because they got something they can drive in the shallow water where the outboard motor can't go. So that whole market, everything has changed since we started. But... I'm telling you, I couldn't give them away with $100 bills tied on them when I started. <laughs> I mean, just, it, it, it wasn't accepted because it was so odd looking because it was so long. And they didn't understand the reason it works so well is because of the length. You got the prop back behind the boat, and that's what really makes it operate well in the shallow water. And you had the torque. I mean, basically, you've got these, you know, lawnmower. I mean, imagine these engines, you know, they're coming off lawnmower engines or, you know, they're they're built for that purpose or washers or whatever the case may be. And so you have this effectively a lawnmower motor and all the, you know, the torque that they've got. And you've put it on this frame now. And, and it seems, you know, and it's been effective for, you know, decades. So so when you when did you start pondering the concept of what is a surface drive now? Like where did, like how did that how did that design evolve? That design started, you know, the a surface piercing prop has been around for a long, long time. That's what they run like on the hydroplane on racer boats. The the propeller runs half out of the water and they get more speed out of the boat, creates lift, it runs. We, we were running our long tail go devil. You know, with the prop we put on it, the stainless steel prop with the cup in it, it would surface. You could run across mud with a long tail, just like a surface drive, but you had to physically hold up on the handle and control the depth of the prop to make it run. It wouldn't hold itself where it needed to be. You had to physically hold it. And that was fine for short distances, but for long distances, you'd get too tired. Pro Drive, one of my competitors, said we do a lot of business back and forth. They kind of first started with a uh, surface drive, running a surface propeller with a unit that they designed. They're using a vertical shaft, same engine, 
motor shaft going through a gearbox driving a propeller. Then other manufacturers came in and started building belt drives, and we were kind of last on the list. Yeah, I kind of laid back watching, and then when we went into it, put my perspective on it and built it the way we build things. ProDrive is aluminum casting, and the others are, you know, they're using castings or, or machining housings, do a lot more machine work. But we're in the fabrication. We fabricate everything, you know, so ours box is all fabricated out of steel. We bend it and form it. And our drive line is a little different. It's, it's belt-driven. We've got a bearing unit on it so we can get the box up out of the water and run an angle on the drive shaft through U-joints. It's been very, very effective, very, very dependable, what we have. I have people, and you know, we just started building reverse engine two years ago, and I've had customers come up to me and say, man, I bought a motor from U-06. I bought a motor from U-05. So I ain't never had any problems. Why do I want one to reverse? So well, some people want to reverse. I said, I've never had any problems with it. Yeah, and, and it's just, I try to keep everything as simple and as basic as we can, and, you know, not to have problems. The last thing I need is customers screaming and hollering, my motor's broke and I need to go duck hunting. Well, I have a lot less problems because we make sure everything is right before we get it online and start selling it. And we do a lot of, you know, testing, research, and make sure it's right. And, you know, we, we've, the, the service drive has evolved from the go devil. You know, the long tail go devil we started with. Then the surface drive is kind of a hybrid between the go devil and an outboard motor, but it still utilizes the same air cool engine as we did with with the uh, long tail. But the air cool engines, everybody calls them a lawnmower motor. Yeah, they are, they're used on lawnmower, but they're more of an industrial engine versus a quote lawnmower motor, you know, where they're very high quality cast iron sleeves, ball bearing engines. You know, they're the highest quality that they can build. And it's, it's more like what you see on a pump or a Gen 7 or like a ZTR mower is the type of mower we'll be on. Some people say lawnmower, they think of a push mower. Well, that's the cheapest engine built, you know. And that's not what we're using. We're using a much higher quality engine than that. You know, my, uh, my dad, he grew up in East Texas, and he used to, he worked at a lawnmower shop, you know, that, that had lawn tractors and things of that nature. And he worked a lot on the two-cylinder, four, you know, four-stroke engines. And, you know, when I was a kid, he used to fix them all the time. And I remember he would tell me, he was like, as long as you keep oil on these things and you don't, and you don't, you know, pour sand in the crankcase, these motors will run forever. You know, like they, they will... There's very little wear, you know, per se, like they're very simple in design. And, and, you know, from when I look at duck hunting, you know, everything that I think about in duck hunting and the environments you go in, the more simple, the better, and the more rugged, the better. And I can't think of too many motors that are more dependable and rugged than, you know, the Vanguards and the Hondas and the, and these, and these industrial motors that you see, as you put it, you know, coming out in these engines, because they're very hard to kill. What's the longest lasting Go Devil, you've seen or heard of from one of your customers? Man, I got so many stories we can't tell them all. I got I got a customer came in here one day. He said he had a twenty seven horse cooler, and he says uh, I can't buy a new Go Devil. I wore mine out. Well, if somebody tells me that that throws up a big red flag. I don't believe him. I said, How you know it's wore out? He said, Well, it's burning oil. I look at him and said, How many hours you got on that thing? He says, I got eight thousand hours. <laughs> Briggs, Kohler, and Honda's goal is 2,000. He had eight. I said, how do you know you got 8,000 hours? He's a tour guide on Caddo Lake. 
He says, in 10 years, I counted my trips. My trips average an hour and a half a piece. He said, I got 8,000 hours on it. I got it documented. He said, I put one starter on it. I, did, I changed one shaft. I did this. I did that. He said, in four years ago, I had a Tahoe ran into the back of me and bent it, and I called you up to buy a new one. He said, you wouldn't sell me one. You made me bring it in, and you fixed it. <laughs> I said, well, I'm not going to talk you out of it this time. I said, I'm going to sell you a new one. <laughs> I got another guy, which everybody's seen on Swamp People, Bruce Mitchell, with the long hair and overalls and no shirt. He, he's been a customer of mine. I can't remember how long. He was in here working on the surface drive that he uses on the alligator show. Well, Swamp People, he said, oh, by the way, I sold my 18-horse gold up. And I remember when he bought it, his father-in-law bought it for him. I said, man, how many hours you have on that thing? Oh, man, the first year, two years I had it, he said, I didn't have an iron meter on it. I went frog hunting almost every night. He said, then the first iron meter broke at 1,800. The second one broke at 1,200 hours. And the last one broke at 1,500. I had one on there for three years. <laughs> and we figured he had about 8,000 hours on that engine. I got a customer came in here. The other day, crawl fishermen document the new Hondas have an hour meter comes on because they won't ever buy an hour meter, then the hour meter break. But he's got a, the new Honda engine, which we don't sell that many of them. And he was in there buying some parts, some seals or something for the shaft. And he's got 5,000 hours on the hour meter, still has original bushing in the bottom of it, has not changed the bushing in the bottom, but he grazes it religiously every day. You know, as, when he's running it, but he's got five thousand hours on it with the original bushing and shaft in it. All he changes the seals, but that's what proper maintenance does when you take care of something. But it's like you say, if they if they don't run it out of oil, they'll run and run and run. What we got to watch in, in the environment is corrosion from salt water. And I got a little recipe for that. I tell people go buy them a gallon of WD forty. Three quarts of mobile one, you mix three parts of WD, one part mobile one, squirt that engine down. And you know, what you're doing, you're using a WD-40 as a carrier to get that mobile one on there. So just to get it on there, because the WD-40 is going to flash off. And that keeps everything corroding and rusting, extends the life of everything. Makes everything last much longer in a, in a corrosive environment. Hmm, I, that's, that's interesting. I've never heard of that. I mean, I could think of... But I guess that, yeah, that does make a lot. And the WD-40 is going to displace the moisture anyway. And your frames, now you sell like the, the long tails and whatnot are galvanized for the most part. At least you offer that as an option on your motors, right? That's correct. That's an option for salt water, brackish water. And same thing on the surface drive. Which back years ago, you know, we were selling stuff on the coast and I could see things rusting. So then we need to offer this galvanized. And it's a chore to galvanize once. Once we fabricate and build it, then we set it to the galvanizing plant. We've got to prep it for galvanizing. We've got to add, weld an extra brace on it that we break off later point in time. Then we've got to re-drill, re-ream every hole in it once it gets back. Then we do all our final assembly. And the galvanizing works really, really well. It's the same as what's on a boat trailer. You buy a galvanized boat trailer. It's a hot dip process. It's not anything we put on. I mean, we've got to bring the galvanizing plant. And they dip it in acid. They dip it in caustic. They dip it in zinc. It's a heavy zinc coating around it. Best thing, it looks like solder, you know, or melted lead is basically what it looks like. It makes a superior coating, much better than paint. It just extends life much longer if you're going to be in a corrosive environment. And, and it just, you know, it adds cost to the product, but you get that money back if you ever sell it because the product's worth more with the galvanized on it. 
Well, yeah, I mean, and then you, you know, you figure you couple like a galvanized frame and, and you know, like on the long tails and I rebuilt, so I've, I've owned three of go, I've owned three go devil motors and I rebuilt a 23 horsepower long tail that I bought a frame, you know, or a gentleman had, had broken the, the motor or he broken the shaft off. And so I called you guys, that was my first go devil motor I had. And I remember how, when I was rebuilding that motor, how, you know, when I was going through it, just how simply rugged it was. And I say that because it's, it's a simple concept and, and, you know, and everything, all the details seem to be thought through on it. And I saw, you know, I actually went through the process of refinishing the frame because it had worn and, or the, you know, the coating was, and, you know, I, th- I thought about, you know, when you put the durability of these industrial motors on a frame that's galvanized, there's not much to kill on it. And I mean, and they can take a lot of abuse. And you said really the, the, the part that's designed to wear the most is the seals, right? That's correct. The seals, they keep, the, uh, they hold the lubrication in for your bearing system and, and your lower bushing. We use a, low, a bronze bushing in the bottom end because it gives my better judgment to put a ball bearing or a taper bearing in the water. When you lose your seals, you're going to start losing lubrication. You'll start getting water in. Well, the, the bushing is never going to break and leave you. It's never going to lock up. It's never going to tear anything up. It's going to keep running. All it's going to do is wear out. And it's not that expensive to replace. I had a customer call me today, pricing out. He's got to change seals, bushings, and, sh- and shafts on his, on his 25 horse long tail. And the total price of all the parts was $156. That's a total rebuild, you know, so that's kind of hard to beat that, you know, but that's, we make most of those parts in house and we do a good job at it. And we buy enough material and keep the parts at a very reasonable cost and, and, you know, it's very reasonable to keep, keep, keep the product running in the long haul. Now, between the long tail and the surface drive, now, now surface drives like your surface, your surface drives are, are belt driven. And, you know, do they, they use the same thing or they've got bushings or I haven't rebuilt a surface drive yet, you know, just your long tails. So what's the, you know, the difference in the, what parts are designed to wear on the surface drive? You know, like where's the maintenance needed on those? We use the same bushing and same bearing system on the surface drive was using a long tail go devil. It's been proven it's worked so long that, you know, we use the same components. Now, when we go to the surface drive, horsepower determines shaft size. Bigger the engine, you got to have a larger drive shaft. You know, and then the surface drives all have a seven-eighth shaft, and then we go to a one-inch drive shaft on the reverse engine for other reasons. The propeller attachment, we had to attach it a different way, and uh, we went to a larger diameter drive shaft, which actually works out better for us. When we put reverse on the surface drive, we didn't just put reverse. We did some other upgrades on the drive system. We shortened it. We've made it tail heavy where we stay in the water. It's much more weedless and, and everything. We, we made a lot of improvements to it over the non-reverse surface drive. We still sell quite a few of the non-reverse, but we're also selling quite a few of the reverse engines now. And everything everything is going bigger horsepower. Everybody wants more, bigger, badder, meaner, more horsepower. And that's what the trend, it's always gone that way. I laugh. You know, you talk about your daddy was working on the engines of Texas that made me think about something. When I was building, back in the 80s, we built a 5-horse, 8-horse, 11-horsepower, and 16-horsepower. I sold a lot of engines in southeast Texas. They didn't buy any 5s and 8s. They only bought 11s and 18s. They not only everything is bigger in Texas, they buy bigger in Texas. They didn't buy small engines. They bought big engines. And I, I'll never forget that. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I, it's interesting you bring up the horsepower thing because I've been guilty of it too. I rebuilt when I, I built a 14 foot boat and I went to your website and, you know, it said like 16 horse or you could get away with, uh, you know, some of the smaller motors. And I was thinking like, man, could a 10 horse really get me where I want to go? And then I, I have to remind myself that those engines are built more for the torque and not about the speed. You know, they're not about going fast. They're about getting you in and out of places where, you know, the water shallow or it's muddy and things of that nature. And kind of along those lines, like what's one of the biggest, what's some of the key differences between the long tail and the surface drive and like the places they can go and the, and the environments they're designed to work in, you know, what's, what's the difference? What's one of the big handling differences, if you will, between those two, aside from the long tail is harder to manage. What's, what's some of that? The long tail is harder to manage because of simple math. It's the length of the drive shaft, so it takes more leverage to operate it. But the long tail Go Devil has a better low gear. The surface drive has a better high gear. If you can get on plane everywhere you're running, surface drive is going to do a better job for you. If it's so bad you got to bump and grind, you need a long tail Go Devil. One, one reason, the long tail, it will run on a hard bottom. Because it has a small diameter propeller, it takes less water or something to push. Surface drive has a larger diameter prop. Now, once it's up on plane, it runs in less because it's running with the prop half out of the water once you get up and running. We're working on a new prop right now. We're getting really, really good performance out of it. And it'll take off with the prop half out of the water. I mean, it'll take off in less water now. And we'll be coming out with that. Uh, next four or five months probably we're still working on prototypes on it and that's something that will be coming out for the surface drive but the, the long tail go devil is just bulletproof I mean it's just I got these guys these commercial fishermen fishing crawfish and Shafflaw Spillway they run them years and years and years and, I mean I know there's some of them, plenty of them I do over 10,000 hours on them they're still running no, they, 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 they just keep on running yeah, as long as they change oil in it, it's just it's going to keep running. Now, I'll tell you what, I'll probably be one of the first customers on that new prop because, I, I mean, I just tra- I just made the transition myself from the 23-horsepower long tail. Uh, I had a 20-horsepower Honda for a little while, and then I just got a boat uh, not that long ago that has your 35-horse standard surface drive on it. So I've kind of... Uh, now, where I hunt most of the time, I kind of make a long lake run, and then I get into about four or five inches of water. I've got a I've got an eighteen foot boat, um, and it'll run. You know, I can run pretty comfortably in in three and four inch water. But I could see, you know, I did find that like once you kind of come to a stop in that surface drive, it can take a little bit more work. You know, like you really need to get it going for it to run across that shallow water. Where on the long tail, I could kind of pry my way in and out. Or, you know, just really jam it down in the water. But once I got out in open water with the long tail, it became a real chore to work for, you know, like you said, for a distance longer than maybe a, a couple miles or, you know, 45 minutes or so. Well, it's, it's not that hard. If it's set up right, it's not hard to run. It's just harder to steer and harder to maneuver. But up on plane running, you know, that, that, that part of it's easy. It's just if you if you got to maneuver a lot, make hard turns, it's just you got to back off of it. I tell everybody, you know, selling long tails, new customer buy an engine, I, I tell them, I said, the first time you run this engine, you want your money back. That's <laughs> what we mean. I said, this thing's going to beat you to death because you're going to be fighting it. By the second time you run it, you'll say, man, maybe I can take my, maybe I can train my bike to take this abuse. This thing's wearing me out. By the third time you run it, you learned how to run it, you wouldn't trade for anything in the world. I said, man, this thing will go. 
and you, you can't fight it because it will not get tired. You will get tired, not it. <laughs> and you learn how to quit fighting and learn how to operate it, then you don't have a problem. The surface drive is kind of more, a little more idiot proof. You can sit down and drive it. We can mechanically control the depth of the engine on the surface drive because it's shorter. Like I said, it's simple math. Right. With the long tail, the frame is so long. If we try to mechanically hold it, you take off in the mud, props going down in the mud, and it's going to bend the frame. You can't build it strong enough. You have to physically hold it. you got to hold the handle to keep from digging in the mud. But where it will go, in, like in the swamp and the timber, surface drive will never follow it. There's just there's no comparison. But each engine has its place. And the surface drive is more expensive to build, more expensive to purchase. And then the long tail go devil, you know, the smaller engines, they're much less expensive. And, you know, because there's just less moving parts, less thing, less things on it to manufacture and build and assemble. We have a tremendous assembly time in these new reverse engines. You got electric clutch, you got planetary again, you got electric brake, you got all electrical, the wiring, the switches. And now you add electric trim on it, you got more components, more electrical, more wiring and you can't just throw wires together. When we were testing one, I had one broke on me, and I quit pulling in forward. We took the covers off. Oh, we're in the swamp, getting dark. Mosquitoes are coming. I said, "Man, we gotta get out of here." Finally, we took it apart, unplugged some plugs, plugged it back in. Worked fine. Got out, got back out in the bar where we would get home easily. Quit pulling again, so we had to come in and reverse. And with that dead right there for me, that taught me, I said, no plugs inside the box. Everything's got to be sorted. So that drives more time and more cost in assembly. So all the connections inside the surface drive unit, the reverse are all sorted. There's no plugs or connections inside of it. That way everything is outside. You know, what I also did on it, I added extra circuit in case you lose a switch or a relay. You can plug the, the forward clutch in direct and come home. That just gives me a backup, you know, in case something fails, Gustav can plug it in and get home. Yeah, that I mean, that makes, you know, like we did an episode earlier, Ben and I did, on the, you know, the, the safety aspect and kind of in duck hunting and the environments we go and the weather we go into, you know, everything kind of has to be fixable or reliable to get you at least to a point of safety. And, you know, that's one thing I really can appreciate about, um, you know, reputable manufacturers of these kinds of equipment that you're going to get yourself into these situations is, is does have to be easy to fix. And that's one thing I have definitely noticed about all the Go Devil products that I've had. You know, like I said, I've had, I've had four total, you know, three motors and a boat that everything can generally be fixed in the swamp or in the marsh with a very basic set of tools um, that can at the very least get you started and get you back to where you need to go. So... Yeah, that, and you need to have a little mechanical knowledge also. I've, I've had people call me, customers broke down on the water. I can't count how many times I've got people running on the water. But most of those problems are self-inflicted. Water in the gas, you know, trash in the gasoline, and, and, and just different things like that. You know, I'm telling people how to get, get water out of the carburetor without even draining it on, on a Vanguard engine, twin cylinder. You can pump the bulb so hard, it'll push water out the carburetor. And most people don't know that. I had a guy call me one day and told me what happened. You know, left the dock, started spitting and sputtering. That sounded like you got water in the gas. I said, you got a water bottle, drinking water bottles? Yeah. I said, dump it out. And I said, you ain't tools. I got a pair of pliers. So that's all we need. 
It takes fuel hose off. It's a fuel filter on the side of the engine. Pump some gas in there. He starts pumping. He goes, ooh, ooh, ah, ooh, ooh. This don't look good. I said, look like Kool-Aid. He says, yeah. I said, you got water in the gas. I said, pump it till you get good gas. I said, all right. I said, uh, hook the fuel line back up. Turn the engine sideways. The pump is so hard, it pushes gas out the carburetor. He said, all right, I got that done. I said, all right, take the air cleaner off. We'll pull some gas down the carburetor. And he said, I got a little, I said, take the air cleaner off. Well, I got a little plate over the hole. I said, that's right, I forgot. You got a business card? He said, yeah. I said, take that business card and follow it, make a little trough out of it. Put me a half a teaspoon of gas down that carburetor. He did that. I said, all right, and I started. He turned over, I could hear him. Yeah, 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 boop, yeah, 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 boop, 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 boop. Yeah, 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 start running. He says, man, you the man. I said, no, buddy, that's 42 years experience got you going. I said, <laughs> I said, uh, cock that tank up. And I also had to tell him, lift your tank up where you're not sucking on the bottom. When you get back, siphon that tank off, get that water out that fuel tank, you'd be good to go. And that's all it took to get him running. But that's experience and knowledge that I have. When somebody calls it a problem, I'm the guy they talk to. They don't get put off on somebody else. They're talking to me. Because I've got more experience with these engines than anyone else, and I know more about it than anyone else. It's all due to experience of working on them and repairing them and keeping up to date on everything on them. And that's just, you know, that just comes with the deal. Somebody will say, why should I buy something from you instead of winning competitors? I said, if I come with a deal at no charge, I ain't pay for the phone call. <laughs> I said, that's why you need to buy something from me. Well, that's uh, so, uh, you know, before we, we move over, I do want to talk a little bit about the evolution of kind of the duck boat because you guys build a pretty rugged duck boat. But, you know, if you were to tell if you were to tell the mud boat owners out there right now or people that are considering it, like what would you say that you you'd think that somebody should have like on their boat with them to perform kind of some rudimentary like, hey, you, you know, you find myself and I might be in a bad place. My motor's giving me some problems. What would you say that that onboard toolkit should look like? Mine looks like I got some starter fluid and a little ratchet set. What would you add to that? I never, I never get out of bed without putting my Leatherman in my pocket. They're going to bury me with one around my neck. That, that thing has got me out of more problems. I would have a Leatherman, have chin locks, Phillips screwdriver, regular screwdriver, wire cutters, have some tie wire, and just things like that. Uh, starting fluid doesn't hurt to have. Most important thing, every boat needs to carry, especially if we don't have that much cold temperatures down here but i did a tip on this on facebook everybody needs to carry a propane torch in their boat a little burns matic torch hmm. that thing can save somebody's life if you get somebody falls overboard gets wet you can start a fire in the rain with that torch okay and what that torch can do in freezing temperatures when things start freezing key switches don't turn sometimes starters don't work throttles freeze you can get yourself out of a bind with that heat, you know, with that torch. And that has saved me many, many times. Like I say, we, we, we don't get that cold temperatures that often, but when we do, I've got a torch in my boat. I've seen on an airboat starter freeze up, you know, the throttle cables freeze. Years ago, the throttle cable we used was old wire-type wire wound. They get wet and they would freeze. I saw in 1983, I took the throttle off the Go Devil, Stuck an exhaust pipe in the truck, put it back on the go devil, and took off, went hunting. That's how I had to thaw it out. And after that, that's when I started carrying a torch. He said, we got to have a heat source. But that's the most important thing. But I'd say shine locks, you know, small socket set doesn't hurt to have, but shine locks, uh, Leatherman, 
wire, felt screwdriver, regular screwdriver, and a little starting fluid doesn't hurt, and have those things in your boat with you at all times. That, that, a lot of times that can get you out of a bind. Yeah, that's uh, yeah. I'm gonna add a torch to mine. I didn't even think about that because down here in South Texas, it hasn't gotten that cold yet. But you know, addressing the cold and people, you know, falling overboard. I, you know, we did a safety episode a few back, and one of the things we talked about was carrying fire starters and things like safety, you know, waterproof matches for that very reason. But you know, that's kind of a whole other subject. So let's kind of move on to the the evolution a little bit of the duck boat. You know, so when did you make your first duck boat? When did you kind of figure out that, you know, we need to we need to make a product that's just as rugged as our motors to put on and, and get people from point A to point B? When I started when mainly hunting in the marsh, I was hunting in Cameron Parish over there and it's just mud and grass and water. Well a regular John boat works fine for that, but it doesn't perform as well because it's got the V crimps on the bottom because that's resistance and drag Especially run up somewhere with a hard bottom that's so shallow you can't run, you got to turn the boat around. Well, it doesn't turn real well because it's got the crimps in the bottom. You got a slick bottom boat, it'll turn much easier. But what made me build one of my first boats, what I call a sure enough go devil boat, hunting boat, I started hunting down here in Marpaw Swamp, and it's really, really rough terrain. Stumps, logs, there's a two-plow gum cypher swamp that was all cut. From the turn of the century to 29, when they got done cutting all that timber out of there. And it's really, really hard on a boat. And I got in a, a place to hunt down there, and I needed a boat. And I didn't have what I needed. I went and bought a little uh, Lumberwell boat. It was, was, was now Express, but it was a 63,000 boat, little point skiff. Five trips I had upside down welding on it. I said, this, this ain't going to work. So then I built one of my first boats. I built, I'd already built that mud boat years ago. In 1980, I built that boat. It was out of 316th plate and 18 inch aluminum plate. But my first really go-to boat I built was probably about 1983. Built out of a sheet of 125, 5086 aluminum. 5086 is a much harder alloy. Most boats are built out of 5052 H32. The 5052 bends and forms real nice. You make 90 degree bends in it, make seats, lids, and decks. And that's what we use on the go-to boats for the seats, lids, and decks. But the actual hull is built out of one piece of 5086, much harder alloy. I can't make parts out of 5086. It will bend. When you bend it, it'll crack on you because it's so hard. We have to use a larger radius die to bend the sides up and make the V-crimps in it. But we started building the boats and in 94, I saw a need for much, there's a need for a higher quality boat because we started building bigger engines. We just needed a better boat. And we built a boat like a Palm Beach style airboat, round bottom, round corners. And, and, the, and the belly, the bottom of this boat is like the belly of an alligator. That's our go double hunting boat. And it really operates real well in the shallow water and in the marsh and the swamp. And then we, as time went on, we built a surface drive. We built what we call a surface drive boat. It has a tapered chime. It's a flatter bottom. And it runs just a little bit faster. It's more conducive for the surface drive. Now, depending on where you're running, you buy the boat that suits your needs and you buy the engine that suits your needs. Either engine will work on either boat. doesn't matter. You know, you can put a surface drive on, on a go-double round-bottom boat or you can put a long-tail go-double on a surface drive boat. If you run in... in Backwater on Mississippi River, four foot of water, in deep water, running the willow trees, you want 
and you, you want to use a long tail, you need a surface drive boat that's going to track better at idle. The round boat rolls off of stumps and logs better, but what it'll do, it'll roll in a high-speed turn. It'll roll and the bottom hooks the water and rolls and turns. It doesn't slide, but it doesn't track well at idle in deep water. It will track in shallow water because the tail of the go-devil is bouncing off the bottom, and it makes it track. So it's just the handling characteristics are different with the two boats, but each have their own needs, but they're all built out of, of a heavier alloy than the regular John boat, and the bottoms are slick. When you run over a stump or a log, if you got v crimps in the bottom of the boat, you can't slide off to the side. you got to go straight over, so you got to power over, straight over the top of it. Where with, with a slick bottom boat, it'll just slide off the side, just keep on going, it'll rock and roll, never check up. And just the handling characteristics are better. I had a customer in uh, Mobile, Alabama, who had been running Godel for years, and when I started building the boats, I did a mailing, mailed all my customers brochure on a boat. And he looked at that weight on that boat. So oh, that boat never go where mine goes. It's too heavy. The two of his friends bought him, and he had to call me and tell me. He said, you know, I saw that weight on that boat, and I said, that boat will never go where mine goes. I was totally wrong. I can't keep up with these guys. They're going where well, I could never go with that slick bottom. It's made that much different. And the shallow water is where it, it plays in. You know, if you run in deep water, it's not as much a necessity. But what we build is just a longer-lasting boat. You know, it's just a heavier-duty boat that you get more more years out of than a regular conventional John boat. Yeah, you're never gonna punch a hole in it, and run through the ice. Never. Yeah, it takes a piece of steel to make a hole in it, and then you just weld a patch over it if you do cut a hole in it. You know, it's no big deal to repair. Yeah, I was gonna say. I mean, I I, I had a go double. I had a 1644, and it was a 2000 model, and um, you know, I, I look at that boat and my, my buddy's running it right now. And I look at that and I go, you know, whatever were to break on this, I, one, I, I can't figure out what part's going to wear on it. And two, if, if it did wear, I don't know what part you just couldn't go and take and have welded fixed. You know, like I, I've always said that an aluminum boat, I mean, that that's going to outlast like my great, great grandkids, as long as it's, you know, once again, not dropped off a waterfall. Now it doesn't get in a wreck or it doesn't get corrosion due to electrolysis. I've seen boats with holes corroded in them. One other tip for all the consumers out there, treated lumber change in 2013. Most people aren't aware of this. They took the arsenic out of it. Treated lumber now on carpet on aluminum boat equals holes in your boat. You cannot put carpet on treated lumber now with aluminum boat. It's, it's just it's going to make holes in it. It's just doesn't work. So what we had to do once we found this out, we have all our trailers built with, with plastic slicks on the boards. That way, you know, you don't have anything holding water to carry that corrosion, and the, and the chemical from the treated lumber can't access the aluminum to cause it to corrode. And we had to start doing. We started that about I don't know, five or six years ago. Every trailer we sell now has slicks on it. And that's something anybody can add. You know, your boards on the trailer, once your trailer gets so many years old, it's time you're going to have to replace the boards. They're going to get deteriorated and have to be replaced. Well, any treated lumber you buy now is 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 not what it was before 2013. So you can buy the slick material and you just screw it, you know, it wraps around the tube before and you screw it on or, or staple it on. And that'll protect your boat from corroding and get some new lumber. Hmm. That's, that's it. Uh, yeah. I never would have thought about that, but, 
um, you know, until I probably showed up and had a hole in the bottom of my boat. And I'm, I'm going to go and look at my, I've, I've got those plastic strakes on my trailer as well um, right now. So that's, I don't, I don't necessarily have to worry about it to the same extent, but yeah, for everybody out there that may have replaced their boards, you might want to take a look at it. And so now, you know, it, it does sound like, you know, like between these combinations of things, you know, especially with Go Devil and the way that you guys build your products and kind of the philosophy that you bring into, you know, the rugged reliability of it. You know, you figure you pair up a, a, a nice, you know, one of these aluminum boats and, you know, at the end of the day, it's it's a fairly cost effective rig to run. And that was one of my early appeals to it. I've had bass boats in the past without boards. You know, I, I took my boat to the lawnmower shop and had them do a, ton, a tune up on it. You know, it's it's a much... Um, it, you know, it seems to me like a very low maintenance outfit. So between the boat and the motor, what would you tell the listeners out there as far as what should somebody do preseason and postseason to kind of take care of their boat motor combination? Preseason, what I tell everybody, you want to do a full blown checkup and do a test run. Don't wait first time put it in the water when you're going hunting. You need to run it before you go hunting. First thing I do when a boat comes in here for service, we siphon the gas tank. We've got a, a older fuel hose with a bulb with a piece of copper tubing stuck in it, and we place a tank on the deck. We cock the tank up where the neck end is low, and we suck out the low end of that tank. Everybody has water. Nobody's exempt, and I got more water than anybody else in my equipment. I mean, I, I, we fight water all the time. But if you siphon the water out of that tank, never, never pour. If you get water in the fuel tank, don't pour it out. You're not going to get it all out. If you siphon it out, you're going to get 110% of that water in trash because it all goes to the bottom. When you go to dump it out, it doesn't all come out. It's going to stick to the sides of the tank. But cock the tank up, siphon it up. You can see the water in there if, it, if there's water and trash. The trash will be with the water. And you siphon it out into a five-gallon bucket. If you got, if water ever gets in the carburetor in your engine, well, then you got water in your tank. You got water in your fuel hose, and you got water in your water trap. So if you get water in the carburetor, you need to get it drained, get it cleaned out, clean your water trap out, disconnect your fuel hose, blow your fuel hose out, and then siphon the tank to get rid of the source. But pre-season, what I tell everybody, siphon your tank just to check it. If you don't have any water, that's great. But if you have, it takes a certain amount of water in the fuel tank before it gets in the fuel hose because water is heavier than gasoline. It takes a certain amount of water in the fuel hose before it gets into your water trap fuel filter if you have one. It takes a certain amount of water in that water trap before it gets into that carburetor. So if it's in that carburetor, it's everywhere. You got to get it out. You got to clean your whole system out. And the other thing, you know, you grease, grease your shaft, grease all the lubrication points on the drive unit, crank it up and run it out of the water. Make sure that it's not slinging grease out the bottom seal. If it does, then you need to address that. Run it, get it good and hot, check everything on it, look for any leaks, make sure there's no oil leaks, no fuel leaks. Just give everything a once-over. And air clean is hard level need servicing because there's no dust, no dirt. But sometimes, you know, you may get pollen or something in there. What generally happens if uh, somebody leaves a fuel tank connected with a vent closed, they'll build pressure, push gasoline, bypass the carburetor, go through the rings, Get a crankcase, don't fill it with oil, it'll blow it up in the air cleaner. So if you got oil in your air cleaner, you need to, you know, replace that and check everything. Spark plugs are something you change about once every 10 years. You don't change them very often with electronic ignition. You know, spark plugs run for a long, long time. 
Vows don't need adjusting very often. I wouldn't adjust valves. You got five, six, seven, eight hundred dollars on the engine. It's just basically the biggest thing. Check all your fuel, and when you put it up after the season, you can run uh, put a fuel stabilizer in it and a carburetor engine. You run out of gas. The EFI engine, you do not run out of gas. I found some stuff. I'm gonna call it miracle in a bottle. Because that's what it is. It's a miracle. It's called a mechanic in the bottle. If you got an engine that's not running quite right, I would run that through there. You can buy it at Home Depot for eight bucks, six, eight bucks. It's like a cleaner that helps clean your fuel system. And I had a head trimmer that wouldn't idle right. We ran that stuff through there, straightened up, ran perfect. It's not going to fix every problem, but it's going to help minor problems that you would have with an engine. It'll help clean the carburetor. And that would be something I would do preseason and postseason on that. But the uh, biggest thing I can tell everyone, put your boat in the water a month before it's time to go hunt. Not a week, not three days, a month. And run it and put some time on it, make sure everything is good. That way, if you do have any issues, you got time to get it repaired before the hunting season comes. Last thing you want, go opening day and the engine won't run when you get to the boat launch. We don't want to see that happen. Yeah, and that's you know, that's something that I know I've been pretty fastidious about in mind and I use bow fishing as an excuse to go out and run a motor or run a boat, um, you know, when it's warm out prior to the teal season. And, um, you know, as far as checking the seals, checking the gaskets, you know, that pressure lubricator really helps kind of see if there's any, uh, you know, holes in the integrity of the bearing and seal system. And, you know, I look at that. I like to put fresh grease on everything, too. You know, I'm, I'm probably I probably grease more than you have to. You know, I always like to go top things off just to keep it fresh. And, you know, I think another thing for people to check out, too, is the bearings on your trailers. You know, um, make sure your trailer gets you from point A to point B. And then as far as the boats go, I mean, the boats are pretty they're pretty they're pretty bomb proof. You know, if you especially if you don't have like carpet or any sort of electronic, you know, beyond your lights and whatnot. But um, yeah, that's that's pretty good stuff about the the motors and and, and the preseason postseason. And then for me, um, you know, if you just take them to have them tuned up at the lawnmower shop, you know, a reputable lawnmower place around uh, will usually do that. I'm I'm lucky. I've got a lot of them around here. Most people do. Um, but other than that, you know, Warren, as we close up here, uh, what what's kind of in the future for Go Devil? Like, what kind of direction are you guys looking into without going into any proprietary secrets and things of that nature? Uh, you know, you mentioned you're working on the prop, so I'm kind of excited about that. That's that's something I'm I'm going to look forward to. And you know, the FNR is fairly new, so so what's kind of on the horizon for you guys? Well, right now we're working on props. We got our prop. My three-blade prop runs fabulous. We had to get away from the two-blade because of vibration. And what's happening with the two-blade, when it comes out of the water, slapping the water and creating a lift. Well, we've been working on that. We've got it running really, really good. And the next step for that two-blade, we're getting a stronger reverse out of it than we are with the three-blade. So we've got a two-fold issue. We're getting it to run smoother. The two-blade is a little more weedless. It's going to take off better in the mud. And we're going to have a stronger reverse with it. And we, we, we're real close on it. We're fixing to make some rapid prototypes. We'll scan the prop, make a 3D file, and we'll print some plastic propellers, wax propellers, that we'll cast the same way we cast the propellers now to make some more prototypes to work on, to make some more changes. And when we finally get it right, then we'll get a mold made to make the final product. 
that's going to be a, an improvement that will help. And it's going to work not only on the reverse mode, it's going to be on a non-reverse surface drive. It's going to be for the surface drive. It's going to just get a little bit better performance. Faster? Yeah, maybe mile an hour, two miles an hour at best. That's not the issue we're looking for. We're looking for, you know, the ability to take off, shallower, more weedless, run better in the vegetation, and have a better reverse with the reverse. Other issues, we've just gotten into the console boats with hydraulic steering. You start building those last year, and that's doing real well. Next step will be a twin-engine boat. I was probably the first person to have a twin-engine boat back years ago. Back about 1998, I had twin long-tail go-devils on a boat. I run to my hunting camp, and that graduated to a surface drive single-engine and graduated to a twin-engine surface drive that I'm running now since 06. I got twin 35s on a 2456. One thing I want to elaborate on boats just for customers to understand on on the goat elbow boats, we don't build a boat under 16 feet long because I won't put my name on anything that runs that bad. <laughs> the shortest thing we'll build is 16 foot. And and the longer the boat, the better it's going to run. My best running boat in a long tail goat devil is 1838 with a 23. A surface drive likes a wider boat because you got more weight in the back and it gives you more lift to keep you up and running. We'll go to the twin engine rig. The first one I'm going to build is going to be 24 feet. It'll be a 72 inch bottom, 24 feet long. But the 40 zone, that boat's going to run 30 miles an hour. But it's going to run 25 miles an hour over low. You know, because it's so big, it's not going to slow down much. And uh, that's the next thing we're getting into. In fact, I got a customer calling me today from North Louisiana. Want to know if we got that available yet? I said, No, we fixed the work on it. So, you get the first one built. I want to come see it. I said, Well, you come take a ride because it'll probably by next month we'll be starting on that, getting that going. We've got all the components here to do it. We just got to, you know, I tell everybody we've got to crawl before we walk, we've got to walk before we run. Getting this reverse engine online was like pulling all my teeth, screwing them back in my head, pulling them all out again, and screwing them back in again. I mean, it's just been a battle to get everything to meet my satisfaction for longevity and dependability. And we got it. And, I mean, it's working. It's working great. We've got several hundred of them out there running and have had great success with it, and everybody's well pleased with it. So right now what we're concentrating on is maintaining the status quo, building the best product we can build, and giving the best service we can give to our customers when they call. Yeah, I have to say that, you know, as as uh, somebody that, as, that really appreciates, you know, I, I don't necessarily want to be the first to the party with something. I want something that's going to be dependable. And that's that's one thing I appreciate about your products that you guys put out there is the dependability and the and the and, you know, if you're taking it out there, you know that the thought's been put into the reliability aspect of it. And it doesn't have to be the, the shiniest thing there, but it will be the most reliable. So that's pretty yeah, that's pretty interesting stuff, and I look forward to the the products you guys are going to put out too with those center console boats. Maybe one day I can graduate to something like that. Right now, the the boat I've got is kind of getting me around, but I'm sure my hunting horizons will expand in the future. Well, as we wrap up here with Mr. Coco, what do you want to leave the listeners of the Falfront Outdoors with? I kind of pride myself being like John Deere and Caterpillar, and what that means is service, dependability. And, and availability of parts and service. I own seven John Deere tractors between here at my shop, my hunting camp, and the farm I'm interested in. I own two Caterpillar excavators. One of them's on a marsh buggy. 
And the reason I own those Caterpillar and John Deere is because of, of service and parts availability. John Deere and Caterpillar have the best service distri- parts distribution. If you need a Caterpillar part, they're not going to have it in stock because they can't stock everything. But it's going to be here tomorrow. Same thing with John Deere. The John Deere dealer cannot stock every part that they sell, but they got it tomorrow. What I do, we only sell a certain amount number of engines. Uh, a small engine dealer, he services everything. He can't stock everything. We only sell about eight or nine different engines. We stock every part for everything we sell. So that is part of my, my business line or whatever you want to call it, my philosophy is being able to have the parts and the service to take care of my customers in the future. You know, we, we take care of a lot of issues over the phone, warranty issues. I can send a customer a part, he put it on himself. But, you know, and then we file a warranty for the claim for the part. Customers running in a matter of days versus waiting weeks to get someone to look at it. And that happens a lot of times, you know, because of what we can do. But looking forward into the future, what we got is just, I say, maintaining the status quo, giving the best service we can, and having everything available to take care of our customers as soon as we possibly can. And give them the service and somebody answers the phone when they call. <laughs> well, I could tell you that I uh, really appreciate you answering the phone when I called uh, to do this to do this, uh, you know, episode of Foul Front. And uh, I really appreciate you coming on and sharing your your stories and your, your history on the mud motors and uh, the boats and how they developed. I know that, you know, as a boat hunter myself, it's it's been very enlightening to hear. Uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to the products that you guys are putting out. And, you know, with that, we're going to wrap up this episode of the Foul Front Outdoors and uh, things to look forward to. You know, Ben's going to be back here soon. This was the first episode of the Foul Front that Ben was not a He's been out of pocket this week, so we were glad to get a guest on to, to fill the space. And as far as uh, the listeners out there, if you get a minute, please go out and uh, take a look at the Facebook group. We're going to post some links to the Go Devil site on our Facebook page for everybody to go take a look at. They do have some pretty cool videos and take a look at their products out there. And if you're in the market and you're considering going into the the boat uh, the boat side of hunting, I could tell you that I've been doing it now for a couple of years and it's, it's definitely opens up a different world out there. And I have to say that the go devil products have treated me extremely well. And like Mr. Coco said, the customer service has been second to none. So with that being said, we're going to wrap this episode up. Thanks for everybody for tuning in. And we look forward to seeing you on future episodes of the foul front outdoors. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the foul front waterfowl podcast. Please come join us on our Facebook group, the Foul Front Waterfowl Podcast Group, where you can connect with a good group of hunters because we're all in this together. We need to act like it so that hopefully our great, great grandkids will be hunting ducks over our favorite public lands. Uh, We also ask that you go ahead and give us a written review on iTunes and give us five stars if you think we deserve it. And we really do want to hear back from you uh, so that we can give you the best possible content. I mean, if you get in on that Facebook group, you can get in there and you can ask questions and you can tell us what you want to hear next or you can tell us uh, what you don't like and we'll be sure to tailor things to our listeners. So, all right. Stay safe out there and we will see you next week.
want to succeed. You want to fish. You want to be one of the greatest. Tune in to West Marine's Life on the Water, presented by Costa Custom Boats, every Saturday night from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. You'd think, with four of us spread out on a tiny island, that the task of tagging a whitetail would not be a big thing. But, as I've learned, no matter where I've been, whitetails can be damn tricky. Pursuing wild game in wild places. Tune in to Hunt Stand Presents Saturdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.